First Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 7. Hear God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this also you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are the heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. If you think back to some of the cringy 80s and 90s Christian culture trends, a few of them might stand out. Now, I know we have our own versions of these things today, but some of those trends include maybe the synth-heavy 80s-style pop Christian music or the outline of the fish on your bumper, or one of the most all-time popular ones, four letters, WWJD, those bracelets. What would Jesus do? Now, I cannot encourage this um, motto to you as you know, the most comprehensive motto to define your life by because it simply doesn't capture the gospel. We're not supposed to just do what Jesus would do. But in the right place and in the right time, Christians who are already rooted in the gospel, this can be a helpful motto. What would Jesus do? And that's exactly what Peter does here in this passage. He applies to believers in specific situations, what would Jesus do in this situation? And he even uses Christ as the example. Crucially, 
what Peter does is he takes that suffering servant from Isaiah 53 and he directly ties it to the sufferings of Jesus. And believe it or not, our passage today is the passage that serves as the foundation for our Christian understanding of Jesus as the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. Our understanding as Christians of Jesus being the suffering servant is solidified here in this passage in particular. It is mentioned in other places in the New Testament, but only here is it directly tied to the sufferings of Jesus. And as he does this, Peter is making the point that Jesus, he superseded his own self-justification to illustrate God's goodness and love and to powerfully heal sinners. And so similarly, the call for Christians, for every Christian, is one where we surrender our rights and we seek instead to demonstrate to others with all of our lives the glory of God. Now, in no way is this something we do in our own strength just by remembering what Jesus did or trying to do what Jesus might do in our situation. Instead, it is precisely because he has saved and healed us that we become able to live in response, even to be faithful in difficult situations because it is Christ's strength. And because Jesus did what he did powerfully, we get to do it reflectively. So, Let's give some context and some background. Look back at verses 11 and 12 of this passage where we started last week. Peter here tells his readers to remember that they are sojourners in this land and they have a heavenly inheritance. Their role on this earth then is to live consistently with their heavenly citizenship, even as they continue to be citizens on earth, and to live with a clear conscience of godliness and submission to every human institution, including the government, as far as it doesn't conflict with godliness, so that the watching world might also give glory to our God. And then Peter talks specifically in verses 16 and 17 about Christians being slaves of God, slaves of God, and to live in fear of God, reverence, to God, service to God in verses 16 and 17. And now he returns to those concepts in verse 18. He's turning specifically to literal servants in this world and tells them to be subject to their masters with all fear, that is, with all respect. And then, in case the other readers missed it as this letter is read to those churches in Asia Minor, he goes ahead and he applies it directly to wives and to husbands as well, because this is a message for all Christians who serve as servants of God. Of course, there are numerous questions and ethical concerns that are raised around verses like these. And I will do my best to address some of the major ones, but time will not allow, nor will my imperfect explanations allow for all the concerns to be addressed. And in the case that you feel your concern is not addressed, this invitation is sincere. Let's talk. We are not ashamed of the gospel. And nor are we ashamed of the word of God, which makes us wise for salvation. But often we must intentionally and diligently work through some of the tough things that are easily misunderstood together. So I welcome that. So to begin unpacking these difficult things, let's, remind, let's remember what, Peter, what context Peter is writing into. Peter's concerned, like we read in verse 12, even if it's only secondarily, He's concerned that Christians are not causing upheaval in society. 
This is not moralism that tells them they need to fly under the radar, but he is concerned that Christianity not become a target too quickly. Perhaps he was already picking up on some indicators of the tides that before too long were going to lead to Nero's persecution of the Christians. Regardless, he was concerned that they might live in a way that is honorable in the eyes of the world. How we live as Christians matters because it gives witness to the world. And he tells them wherever possible, Wherever it doesn't conflict with the commands of God, live at peace with those around you. And back then, the household was the building block of society. And it is today too, but a big difference is that they knew it. They understood how important the household was. And they celebrated it. And their households were also much larger than the American household typically is because it had uh, more than just the immediate family. It often included generations and it included in-laws and it included many servants, sometimes hundreds of them. The Greek understanding of the day, referring to the household, required the order in the household to be first and foremost. One commentator says this, the Greeks required order in the household as the foundation of order in the state. In calling for the submission of wives to their husbands, Peter is requiring behavior that would have been approved in society at large. Such conduct would put to shame the slanderers of Christian lifestyle. There are other thinkers too, like Plato and Xenophon and Aristotle and Plutarch, and they wrote about the importance of a well-managed household for the sake of a prosperous society. Another commentator puts it this way. Of paramount importance was for each member of the unit to know and function well in his or her place for the common social good. The things that happen at home were understood to be indicative of the tide of culture. The unfortunate thing is that these secular thinkers had misunderstandings and they had ungodly views of how the household should be run. You and I might have chosen different things to call out about that culture if we had written this letter, but we know that God had inspired Peter to write this, and what Peter did call out was far better to call out than our own hypothetical tactics might have been had we written this. Here are a few things that we do see Peter highlighting, some issues with the way that that world understood the household. First of all, slaves and servants could be treated however anyone wanted, however anyone pleased. And it was impossible, some thought, that injustice could be done against a slave because he or she was a slave. Wives who were not in as dire a social situation as slaves still were required to socially and religiously conform to their husbands. The husband's role as the leader of the household was to maintain order in order to indicate his authority and to appear to the world to be an honorable contributor to the household and therefore to society. And all within his household were to follow his lead in religious matters and they were to share in his social interests and any rebellion or deviation within would have bruised his reputation in the eyes of society. There are other things, but these seem to be very directly confronted here in our passage today. Peter's writing two Christians in Asia Minor, people with various levels of social strength, and he has one message for them all. It's not motivated strictly by social concerns, but by theological and even evangelistic concerns. 
he cares that the gospel is not marred. He says, no matter where God has placed you, operate with fear of God and respect for fellow man. That is a call for all Christians because a life transformed by Christ is a life of honor, even at home. You can live as a slave of God out of fear for God, even at home. So a life transformed by Christ is a life of honor, even at home. So let's address these three sections as Peter did. We'll look first at the slaves, that is the servants, in verses 18 through 25. And we'll turn to uh, the wives and then lastly to the husbands. So let's look here, starting in verse 18. Here. Peter tells the servants to be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You'll remember, Peter has already said this in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he's telling them specifically, here's how you do this in your situation as a slave. If you want application in scripture, it doesn't get much clearer than this. Even the institution of servant master is not excluded from the command to live in fear of God with human institutions. And Peter encourages them to be subject with all respect or to fear the good masters and even the unjust ones. He tells them that if if they are treated unjustly, it's a blessed thing. And it's a thankworthy thing. He calls it gracious, a gracious thing in God's eyes if they suffer for doing good. Now, we will not unpack that concept today because Peter clarifies it even more in our passage that's coming up later in chapter 3. As Americans, we read this and our historical justice radars are blaring inside our heads. Reading passages commanding servants to be subject to their masters. So let me go ahead and ask the obvious question so that we can seek understanding rather than objection to this text. Is Peter condoning chattel slavery, that is personal ownership slavery, like it was done in America in the 1800s? No. First, while some Greek thinkers describe slaves as human possession, Peter gives them a dignity in this passage and moral responsibility that contrasts starkly with the pagan view. True, the Christian slave may not have had the ability to leave service to a pagan master whenever he or she desired, but he or she did have the ability to respond freely and willfully as servants of God, nobly and honorably, in their current situation. Second, nowhere does Peter promote the institution of slavery, nor does any other New Testament writer. Their lack of outright condemnation of it makes some people uneasy. But if we're willing to listen to the point, especially here in Peter today, there are great indicators of gospel equality being promoted here and across the New Testament writings. And it promotes a just perspective of fellows, humans to one another. And then that provides a far longer term effect to transform society, to transform a household than perhaps addressing the institution itself. Now, third, Peter says servants can be treated unjustly. That alone shifted an understanding because the Greeks thought that, again, no slave can be treated unjustly because he is a slave. And Peter says, no, absolutely, you can be treated unjustly and you get to choose how to respond in that. 
even when harsh treatment was accepted and expected at times. And then fourth, Peter breaks the social expectations that slaves be forced to worship their master's God. He at no point tells them that they must give up their worship of Christ. Fifth, Peter has in mind a very specific type of servant here in this passage. This servant, that this word he uses in verse 18, refers specifically to household servants, and in fact, some translations put that in there. He's speaking to household servants. This is not the same word for slave that he had used earlier, referring to us as slaves of God. That would have implied field laborers and other positions. He's laser-focused today on the household, which includes household servants. And it's important to note that almost 20% of the population served as household servants. They were contracted workers for a period of seven years, after which they would be paid their wages and let go. The tasks of a household servant were various. They were workers, they were managers of farms, they were teachers, doctors, and some of them even had their own servants. This role brought stability to the economy of the empire. If they found out that Christianity, if, if the culture at large found out that Christianity was infiltrating and converting the servants to a religion other than their masters, and therefore subverting the master's authority, then Christianity would be swiftly targeted as an enemy of the state and of the social order. And how much worse would it be if they found out that Christianity, this religion, was arguing for the equality of all people in God's eyes? even slaves to their masters. So should we just be okay then with whatever institutions end up popping up in our culture? Should we just be okay with slavery happening? Well, if it happens, it happens. No. Our situation allows us to speak and to vote against such things and to work against certain unjust systems. The point is that in any situation, Christians can do something about the problems long-term by acting in a way that is honorable and that reflects God's goodness to his glory and uh, and his glory. And even if that long-term trajectory does not end up transforming society as some Christians think is our goal, we are moving forward then with obedience to Christ and following his example. One thing Peter does here by starting with the slaves, with the servants, the household servants, He uses them as an example for the rest of the Christians. He's the first, they're the first ones he addresses. And he says they are the prime example for application for all believers who likewise live in fear of God as servants of God, because Jesus did this exact same thing. In Isaiah 53, we have the famous suffering servant passage. And it is here again directly interpreted to apply to Jesus. And what we learn of Jesus as he suffered for you, leaving an example, is that he didn't sin, nor nor was there any deceit on his mouth. He spoke truthfully, and he did not sin. And when he was threatened, he did not revile or threaten in return. And he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And in verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree and healed us. His example is only useful as an example because it is a powerful work that really and actually bore our sins and killed sin and gave us life and righteousness, healing all who believe in him as the shepherd and overseer of their souls. Because Jesus powerfully did this and powerfully shepherds and oversees you who believe, 
That means that you, too, as you also live a life of suffering, you can trace your life onto His example and follow that same pattern. When you're reviled, do not revile in return. Do not sin in response. And do not deceive and do not threaten. Instead, entrust yourself to God who judges justly, knowing that you have no condemnation here on this earth and nothing can separate you from God's love and that you can live a life without fear, even in the most fearful conditions. Slaves then, these household servants in particular, Peter uses as a, because they're in a prime position to illustrate to all Christians and non-Christians a remarkably vivid picture of Christ-likeness, even in a society that doesn't operate justly. And in its application to all Christians, we can consider, how can you live out of fear of God now, in whatever position God has put you in? You are to live as a slave of God. And as a servant to those who are in authority above you, whether they're good and kind or unjust and threatening, we must consider how we can live out of fear for God. Consider how worse others may have, may have it. Imagine the rest of those believers hearing this address to slaves thinking, oh man, if that's expected of slaves, how much more is that expected of me? A life transformed by Christ is a life of honor even under unjust masters. Let's look at what Peter says to wives, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. He instructs the wives likewise to be subject. That likewise means with that same fear of the Lord and for the Lord's sake, with all respect. Wives also with all respect are to be subject to their own husbands, this is not a general, all women be subject to all men. It says your own husbands. This, this uh, does not assume uh, inequality between genders. Instead, this assumes specific roles of distinction within the marriage. Christian wives are to submit to their husbands not because they are inferior. They are not. Peter calls them co-heirs with Christ. And therefore, in the eyes of God, that is, according to the most important standard, they are equals. But... By God's design, they have been given a specific role within marriage, and therefore they submit to their husbands according to their free, willful choice for the sake of the Lord out of fear for God and obedience to his command. They choose to submit to their husbands. And Peter moves on. He says they are not to adorn themselves externally. And they're not to flaunt or to impress. They are to adorn themselves internally. It's interesting to think, especially in the power structures of those days, of a situation like this, Again, one commentator puts it this way. Worldly husbands may wish to flaunt the beauty or even the sexuality of their wives. Christian wives will seek to please their husbands, but they cannot avoid the issue of obeying God rather than their husbands. Peter calls for the fear of God that dispels the fear of others. So even if these Christian wives who had unbelieving husbands had been called by their husbands to flaunt or to adorn themselves externally, they are to obey God first and not to obey their husbands. And the principle is still applicable today. That Christians are to focus on the adornment of their hearts more than the adornment of their bodies. Jewelry, clothes, shoes. 
do we care as much about the slow development of character? And Peter uses wives in this way because wives are specially positioned to illustrate godliness to the world and especially to their husbands, whether their husbands are believers or unbelievers. Now, of course, there continue to be questions. Is this a justification for physical abuse? No, this is neither that, nor is it an encouragement to turn a blind eye when things are happening uh, of that domestic abuse kind. And, and, And why? Let's look at why. Because Peter says the need for this instruction, the reason he's writing to these wives is because of their Christianity. And he has in mind the type of problems that might result from them being Christians. That might be a religious upheaval within the household. That might be social scarring for their husbands. Peter's saying, in light of these things that are going to happen because you're a Christian, you can continue to submit. This is not in light of domestic abuse. Therefore, the difficulties the women have to endure, they may include verbal, verbal reprimands, religious pressure, or social ostracization. But also because Peter attaches to them the praise of respect and pure conduct as they respond well. To be abused domestically is not necessarily to be respectful and pure. It may be, it may not be. And so Peter's not praising them for enduring things that we would call domestic abuse. The last thing I'm trying to do is condone domestic violence. But to state, what I'm trying to state is that Peter has in mind a very specific type of submission related to Christianity-induced upheaval within a Greco-Roman society. Rather than intentionally or further embarrassing their husbands for appearing to have lost control of his household, the wives were supposed to endure religious or social chastisement for their new adherence to the way of truth. And they were to continue to honor their husband's social reputation without undermining him or going out of their way to deconstruct his social circles. And as she goes about joining herself to the church, to the Christian community, the one that's different than her husband's, he's going to have a hard time with his reputation. And Peter implicitly allows the wife to subvert him in this. He doesn't tell her to stop gathering with the brothers and sisters in Christian worship. But instead, wives, seek how you might also, in reverence to God, submit to your husband in ways consistent with godliness that might also win him to the gospel. And Peter reminds his hearers that this is an apologetic, that is an evangelistic purpose. The goal is to win the husband. If you ask Paul why a wife is to submit to her husband, he would say that it was built into the created marriage relationship. That's in Ephesians 5. And Peter agrees theologically, but his stated purpose here is different. It's an evangelistic and apologetic goal. And Peter assumes that the husband is an unbeliever. And that's crucially different than Paul's assumption as he describes marriages in Ephesians 5. And Peter encourages the women to let their actions speak loudly. If they have come to the point where their husbands will not obey the word, Look at that, chapter 3, verse 1. So that even if some do not obey the word, meaning they have encountered the word, they have rejected the word, they will not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Even in such a case, wives, if you've tried and you have spoken the gospel and your husband still will not obey, be encouraged. 
you have the tool of godly witness. And it's important to note that Peter encourages them to use this lifestyle witness secondarily to the word. Because so often we'll just excuse ourselves and we'll say, oh, I don't need to preach the gospel because I'm just going to show them the gospel. Or that famous line, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Too often we run to that, not remembering that it is specifically by hearing that people believe. It can probably be properly concluded that these wives have already stated their belief to their husbands. And they've labored lovingly and longingly to help their husbands also worship Jesus, but they weren't met with that sincerity or that desire to understand that they had hoped to be met with. And instead, it appears that they have encountered hostility. And Peter says, be patient. Bear patiently, gently, and quietly, which is precious in God's eyes. And effective, he implies. Now, some people say, okay, gently, quietly, setting up all these gender norms and stereotypes, we must remember, as Peter's commanding these wives to be gentle and quiet, which in God's eyes is very precious, he has just reminded us that Jesus was silent as he went before those who persecuted him. We must remember that Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly. All Christians are commanded to be quiet by Paul in 1 Thessalonians. This is not a special feminine code of conduct, although these are fitting for the wife in the role of the household. But look closely, all of these are characteristics for all Christians, robustly applied here to the wives in these positions in particular, even in a difficult position of marriage to an unbelieving husband. Peter is implying that to rise up against your husband would do irreparable damage but that the husband might yet be one for Christ by your internal adornment, by growing in godliness, by living consistently out of fear for God in service to God, even in this human institution of marriage. Like Abraham's wife, Sarah did. And Peter uses her, a Hebrew example, rather than calling on many of the Greek virtuous woman stereotypes uh, that had been set up, he appeals to this. The, the Hebrew Sarah. And he reminds them, you're daughters of her, not of this modern understanding of the household and social standing. He's reminding them, you're rooted in Christ and in the faith of Sarah and in the Christ-likeness that flowed from her life. And he's saying, a life transformed by Christ is a life of honor, even under unbelieving husbands. And lastly, Peter turns to the husbands in chapter 3, verse 7. He starts off with the word likewise, but you notice he does not use the word be subject. This reflects, indeed, that Pauline theology, that biblical theology that God has set up in the home from the beginning, the structure of the marriage, where the husband is the head of the household. But in the Greco-Roman society, what follows, they, they would have been all on board with that. Yes, of course, the husband does not submit. But what follows would have been shocking to the pagan hearers. Live in an understanding way. Now picture an unbelieving Greek who came to church with their neighbor this Sunday as Peter's letter is read to the church. This, this 
Greek pagan is listening in on this letter and so far says, yeah, okay, sounds good so far. You would have been following along something like this. Yes, slaves, that's right. Be subject to your masters. That's your role. Oh, wait, Peter's saying that they too are worthy of human dignity and that they are prime examples of Christ's likeness to the church and to the world? I'm not so sure about that, but at least he tells the servants not to cause a ruckus in the empire. And moving up the power chain, Peter now is addressing the wives and, and this pagan listener is nodding along saying, yeah, that's right. Tells them to submit to their husbands. We need to make sure that all those who are under authority conform to the authority of the household head. Oh, wait. Peter's saying that wives like servants have the freedom to choose to submit to their husbands and to worship their God different than their husband. I would say that they have to obey and worship the same God. And I could give many examples of good, virtuous Greek women. I'm not sure why he used Sarah, a Hebrew, as an example of godliness, but... Alas, at least he preserves the husband's role as head. And then now come to the last command and imagine the the pagan listener says, okay, talking to the husband, I'm excited for him to finally make clear that it's the husband's job now to keep order and to do whatever it takes to make things stay in line for the sake of society, for the honor of his name, even if it means rejecting those rogue religions operating under his authority. Oh, wait, now he's telling the husbands to be understanding and to show honor, and that they are co-heirs of eternal life, this has gone too far. Peter tells the husbands that in your position, it is not to oppress those under you or to keep things in order for your own reputation. It is to be understanding and to show honor. As Christ laid down his life for the church, He says, show honor to the woman. And again, as we're looking at a barrage of difficult phrases, he continues on and says, she is the weaker vessel. This has been misapplied so many times. In ancient Greek, that word vessel means body, referring to a physical body. And women were understood as weaker physically in the Greek culture at large, specifically in their physical strength. And Peter is speaking similarly. You may notice this whole time he's actually using the form of the Greek household and using some of their structure, but he's replacing it with gospel content. And so he's saying, even as women are weaker physically, we must understand they also bear social weakness, especially in a culture like this. And considering this, the husband's job is to understand Perhaps even if he's speaking to a husband who has an unbelieving wife who has not yet converted to Christianity, be understanding with her. Especially considering that those who believe are heirs with with them of the grace of life. And Peter says, she is co-heir with you of the grace of life. And this is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's what Peter also here is promoting. In this one verse, as Peter addresses the head of the household, he subverts all those social expectations. He says, be understanding and honor your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. My first thought was, what does that have to do with this? 
But if you think about it, how is a man to pray for his family and his wife if he's mistreating her, if he's not honoring her? How inconsistent would that be if we're called to a transformed life even in our household? And we're called to pray for one another? That means we also must treat each other with honor. A husband's honorable treatment of his wife is consistent with his prayers for her and with her, and they feed each other. So what does this mean for us? For you and me, 2023, we do desire to show God's glory to the world, right? We, we want for the world to see our good deeds and give glory to God. And we think, I would really love for people to see my, my faithfulness to God if, if maybe I just had, you know, 10 to 20,000 more followers on social media. Then I'll have a platform where I can really show people the gospel. Or if I can just become some kind of famous, then, then I can actually really show God's glory to the world. No, you don't need to become a social media influencer to make a difference. What's your position? I'm not asking what position do you wish you had. I'm asking what is your position in life? It is right here that your life transformed by Christ can lead you to a life of honor. It is right here. In the house, in the workforce, Right here is where God has called you to be faithful. Use your position to reflect God's goodness. What would Jesus do if he were a kid like me living at home with my parents? What would Jesus do if he were a college student in my position with my parents far away with massive life direction choices ahead of me? What would Jesus do if he were a young single person in America? What would Jesus do if he were a newlywed or a young parent with mounting responsibilities in life? What would Jesus do if he were a middle-aged person with a rebellious child? What would Jesus do if he were retired in a world so different than it was 40 years ago? He would deny himself, take up his cross. When he is reviled, he would not revile in return. He would reflect the goodness of God. And he would entrust the results to the one who judges justly. And therefore, Christians, you and I who are united to Christ in faith, who live in the Spirit, can do that same thing because of Christ's strength that he gave to us when he paid for our sins on the tree. You are healed. Now live like your healer. Because a life transformed by Christ is a life of honor, no matter where we are. Let's pray. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your word. We praise you for Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for us. We pray that we would desire to be like him, knowing that we're unable, knowing that it's only his strength by your spirit that helps us to do that. But we pray that we would rest on Jesus and what he has done for us because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, and what he's done. Would you strengthen us as we go from here? Would you help us to apply to every area of our lives how we might live honorably so that the world might see our consistent living and give glory to you, our God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.